0: Let's bow together. Father, again, we thank you and praise you for your tremendous love for us. We thank you that you watch over us, you take care of us. And, Father, we thank you that you feed us with your living word and you cause us to grow in respect to our relationship with you, to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, Jesus. And, Father, as we look at this portion of Scripture today, help us understand exactly what you intended, but also help us apply it uh, to our lives and to have a, also have a right understanding of how we are to worship you in the church, Lord God. And so we commit this time to you. We entrust it to you. Pray you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were to take a tour of different churches this morning, you would find many different worship styles. Uh, often worship is equated with music, and we'll see today that that's partially true. It's partially true. But you'll see many different types of of worship, many types of uh, worship services. Uh, By and large, you have two categories. You have for uh, what some people would think would be the older generation with the contemporary worship, and then for the younger generation, it appears they have uh, a contemporary excuse me, a traditional for the older, and a contemporary they have for the for the younger people. Well, what does that mean? That just means that each group chooses what music they like, you see? And what we're going to see is that's not what drives and should drive the music we have in the body of Christ. As we're going to see, our music and our worship should be driven by the truth of the Word of God and the God of the truth. And so today we're going to be looking at a passage that helps us understand from the Old Testament principles of corporate worship. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 12, and we have been studying the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to see through this dedication of the wall uh, some principles that help us as a church, especially as a as a small church that's uh, being planted out here in South Carolina, uh, what principles, how things should be done regarding our worship, what should be behind the uh, the choices that we make as leaders for the church as we come together. Now, as we've studied the book of Nehemiah, (laughs) a little shortened there, Nehemiah, uh, we saw the first six chapters of the book were focused on the physical rebuilding of the walls in the context of the opposition that Satan through man brought forth. And God was gracious to bring about Nehemiah and show him favor with the king. And he was able to come and lead these Jews to rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates, the gates that had been burned down. And we see that although uh, God had them there, there was difficulty. There was difficulty. Satan tried to discourage them uh, with with stinging words, to try to give up on the work, to try to throw in the towel. It's too hard. Uh, We don't want to do it. They use stinging words. uh, But Nehemiah prayed. He prayed uh, very clearly, sharing the situation with the Lord, uh, that God would bring just retribution on the enemies, for they were doing a good work. We see that they're doing a good work. And then we saw another one of Satan's tactics, through outright intimidation and fear, uh, the bad guys were going to come attack and, and kill them, but uh, Nehemiah prayed again, and they 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 uh, trusted the Lord, and they went to work defending themselves, having a sword in one hand, a trowel in the other, and uh, worked for the Lord, trusting that he would fight for them. And then we saw that Satan tried to exploit internal sin within the camp, uh those who were using usury and, and uh sinning against the Lord with the people of Israel. Satan tried to exploit that also. But uh Nehemiah feared the Lord and, and did what was good. And it's interesting, you know, we also see that Satan tried to cause Nehemiah to fear and thus to sin. See, Satan wants us to get us to fear, and then when we fear, we sin, and we then ruin our testimony in front of people. And the Lord wanted to, did not want that to happen. The Lord protected Nehemiah, and Nehemiah was protected and followed the Lord and trusted in him and feared him. And so we saw that, that within that, uh, there was opposition. And then we saw that within 52 days, they completed the walls. The walls were complete. And yet Jerusalem was empty. It was uninhabited, basically. And there was not many houses. And it was time for the people to move in. But yet we see in the context and flow of Nehemiah that they were not ready to go. They were not ready to come and have it. They needed to have their spiritual walls rebuilt. And so in chapters 8 through 10, we have... Uh, In a portion of 11, we have the reality that they had the right heart, and they called upon to have Ezra bring them the word of God, and Ezra did. We'll see him today, and they responded to the word of God. They responded, and they obeyed the word of God, and they even had it taught to them by the Levites, all those who could understand And then they came to an understanding that they had truly sinned and their fathers had sinned and that they were in the situation that they were in, having been exiles now back in the land, but under the Persians as slaves, that it was really their fault, that God was disciplining them. He's disciplining them for their father's actions and for their actions. And they then made a commitment to obey the Lord's word. We saw that with the leaders, and it went down to the people also. And the people also made a commitment to obey the Lord in areas where they had failed, such as their relationship to the unsaved Canaanites, such as their relationship to work and trusting the Lord, not doing things on the Sabbath but trusting him instead, uh, such as their relationship to the house of the Lord, which they had forsaken concerning uh, their financial contributions and their service to the Lord, and they committed to do what was right. And then we saw the pinnacle of their repentance in which everyone appeared to be willing to inhabit Jerusalem. So they drew lots to see who could do it. Not the whole, the whole country is not going to move there. So one tenth came and moved there. And they, they praised God for those who had volunteered, uh, who had willingly offered themselves to serve the Lord by living in Jerusalem. And then we came to chapter 12, uh, chapter 12, which we're going to review today, which is really the beginning of the end of the book, where we have the dedication of the walls. And so with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 12, and we're going to begin our look at verse 31, but we'll review what we've seen. And I want to actually go back to read, starting in verse 27, verse 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places. To bring them to Jerusalem so that they might observe, excuse me, they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs uh, to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem, and all from the villages of the Netophathalites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Asmatheph. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They, purify, they also purified the people, the gates and the wall. And now here's where our passage begins. Verse 31, Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, uh, uh, two great choirs the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall towards the refuse gate, Hashiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, with Azariah, Ezra, Mashulam, Judah, Benjamin, Sh- Sh- Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the sons of the priests with trumpets, and Zechariah the son of uh, Jonathan, and the, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Milcah, the son of Zachor, the son of Asap, and his kinsmen. Uh, Shemaiah, Azarel, Malalai, G- Gilalai, Ma'ai, ne- Nathaniel, Judah, and Hananiah with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them and, the fountain gate, and at the fountain gate, they went, up directly, they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim by the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Haniel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped at the gate of the guard. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So I did and half of the officials with me and the priests, Elakim, uh, Maasaiah, uh, Min, Minayamin, uh, Micaiah, Eli NOi, uh, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with the trumpets, and Maasiah, and Shemaiah and Eliezer, Uzi, and Jehohanan, uh, Malchiah, Elam, Ez, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah, Jez, Jezariah, their leader. And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Now that's where we're going to stop today. But I want to keep reading because this keeps going and we've got to remember it's all connected. I'm going to read. On that day men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites for Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. That's nice. It's wonderful for they performed the worship of their God and the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and his son Solomon for in the days of David and Asap in the ancient times, there were leaders of the singers songs of praise and hymns of thanks and hymns of thanksgiving to God. And so all. And so all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave portions due the singers and the gatekeepers, each as each day required, and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites. And the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day they read, now you notice there's these phrases, on that day, on that day, and So we have on that day they they gave those ties and they they praised God for the for the for those who served and then on that day verse thir- chapter thirteen verse one they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to against them to curse them however our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it came about when they had heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. We're not going to see that today, but we're going to see later on that not only did they do what we're going to see today, but they also offered tithes, and they were joyously rejoicing over those who were serving in the ministry of worship. And then we see they heard the word of God, and they responded to the word of God. So with that in mind, with that in mind... Uh, we're going to see that our passage really at heart, at the heart of our passage, is the dedication of the Wall of Jerusalem. Look back in verse 27. Now at the dedication of the Wall of Jerusalem, uh, the term dedication speaks of consecration. It's a setting apart to God. Uh, they're dedicating. They're saying, Lord, this, this wall is, is, is yours. You are the one that helped us. You helped us do it. It's all for you. Everything that happens, we pray that you would be behind it, that you would be in charge. You know, unless a man, uh, unless, The Lord builds the house. They who labor, labor in vain. Right? It's vain for the watchman to stay. It's vain. It's vain to have walls to protect you unless God is in it, right? This is committed to you, Lord God. This is committed. To you. And that's what this is about. But from this great ceremony of worship and committing, we gain great principles concerning our corporate worship. And again, this week, as I was studying, I was studying this pastor for a long time, by the way. You know that. Because each week it's going to be chapter 12, but we do something else, right? We keep going. We're, we're, we're getting through it now. There's been a lot in here, and it's really come to my heart that we have so much, uh, in the Psalms. And in with David and other places concerning the corporate worship, Even Old Testament corporate worship. And in the New Testament, we don't have a lot of references. We have some. And so it's assumed that we should understand. We should know the Psalms. We should know these truths. And they apply to what we see in the New Testament, as we will see, as the shadows are pointing to the reality of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, we have a dedication. And so the wall's been completed. The people have been spiritually restored. And Nehemiah brings forth this celebration, which we can learn much from. Verse 27, backtracking here a little bit. Now the dedication of the wall Jerusalem. They sought out the Levites from all their palace, places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication. With gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres, and this is at core what this at core of our passage today. It is about worship. It's about worship, as we're going to see. It's about worship, and they were sought out. These Levites were sought out, and they were sought out to do so uh, with gladness to celebrate with gladness. Uh, we need to never forget this. Uh, We come into his courts with thanksgiving and and praise, and there should be joy as we come to worship the Lord together. And they were sought to do so with gladness. If you ever see the service of the Lord as we come together on Sunday as drudgery, something's very wrong. It is something that should be causing you to be rejoicing and praising him for coming to celebrate and and worship him together, but also to serve him, those who serve in worship, as we're going to see. And so then, we to enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. They were to celebrate the dedication with gladness. And they were to have hymns of thanksgiving. And they were to have songs of, to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. This passage is about... Worship, as we will see, and it includes the word of God being preached. It includes the sharing back of what God has given us. It includes many facets, as we're going to continue to see this time. Indeed, we see from verse 31 and on, we have, as we will see, two great choirs that are on the walls ending up in the temple. And along with them, we have singing mentioned eight times. We have hymns of thanksgiving to God mentioned twice, along with songs of praise. We have musical instruments mentioned five times. We have rejoicing or joy mentioned six times. We have all this mentioned. This is a celebration, a consecration, dedication. It is immersed in the worship of God, and there are many principles we can gather from it. Now, you might remember last time we gathered from the first 26 verses why those lists were there, why there was, they were going from the original group that came in exile and then to those who were there now we see that each passage revealed that there were leaders in worship. There were those who were appointed to lead the people in the worship of the living God. And there were skilled servants. And that was a principle for us in our worship. There should be those who are skilled in certain areas. Now, they, that gives, it's given over to the Lord by faith, but they should be skilled. And there are those who lead in the context of worship. There are those who have du- duties. And we saw from the New Testament in that context, at least certainly, that elders uh, should appoint those and those who will stand before, those who will lead or rule or, or stand before the congregation. And then we saw in verses 27 to 20, that was 21 through 26, and then we saw in verses 27 to 29 that the worship service should be planned. There should be planning involved. It shouldn't be winging it. Indeed, the Levites and the singers were sought out to celebrate with hymns of thanksgiving and gladness and to accompany and they assembled. There was planning, there was pre-planning involved. They didn't wing it and say, how many Levites are out there? Come on up here, let's sing now. How many people can play an instrument? Come on up here. It didn't happen there. They pre-planned it before this time where they had their celebration. And then lastly, we saw when we were together that the servants, the people, and the place are to be pure, that our worship needs to come from a cleansed heart. First and foremost, our hearts being cleansed through faith in Jesus Christ. And secondly, uh, that we are walking in the terms of his ongoing cleansing by confessing sins. Indeed, we saw verse 20, uh, verse 30, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates and the wall. Uh, This purification would be symbolic. And in the Old Testament, the priests would symbolically purify things with water. We see that in Numbers 31. The symbolic purification always pointed to one reality. Uh, we see in Numbers chapter 8, verse 21, the Levites too purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. Aaron also made atonement for them to cleanse them. We know that these Old Testament sacrifices were symbolic. They were shadows that pointed to Jesus Christ. Now think about it these Jews actually had Isaiah too. They knew that there would be a suffering servant. They knew that there would be one who would come who the sins of would would, would be put on him that he would die. We see that Isaiah 50, 53. And so we know that this happened through the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. We know that we have cleansing through Jesus Christ, that He gave God gave his son that he would purify us, a people for his own possession, that we would be cleansed of our sins. And we have that picture of cleansing. You think about it, you take a bath, you water, you're cleansing yourself. Well, the Spirit of God cleanses us when we trust in Jesus Christ because we are united to him and his work for us. The forgiveness of sins, the price is paid, and we are placed in the body of Christ and we are cleansed. Paul would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.11 that these believers were washed. They were sanctified. They're cleansed of their sin. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, your filthy sin has been cleansed. You have had a new conscience that has been cleansed, sprinkled clean, Hebrews chapter 10. And then we get, we, get sin, we sin here and there because we're not glorified yet. And we need to be those who are continually confessing our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't you dare come to serve the Lord especially and worship Him or come to worship and not be cleansed of your sin. Yes, we mess up. Yes, we have bad attitudes. Yes, we sin. Confess it. Have clean hearts and a clean hand and clean hands before the Lord and worship Him in purity. We worship Him in the Spirit and truth, His truth and by His Spirit. And so then that's where we came to last week. And at this point, we come to our passage where we gain another principle concerning our worship, that the worship needs to be organized. It needs to be organized. Uh, Indeed, Nehemiah organized the leaders into two great choirs, and they proceeded on the wall to the house of God. Notice what happens here. Verse 31. Then I, I would be Nehemiah. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs. Now, coming up on top of the wall. Obviously, the wall was big enough to walk on. We're going to see that. It's a big wall, okay? And it had been repaired 52 days. They're now dedicating it to the Lord. So everything has been prepared. The leaders have been organized. The singers and servants are ready. The place has been purified. And now Nehemiah leads them in an organized fashion on how they're going to do this. How they are going to do this? And notice he says he appointed two great choirs. This takes organization. This takes appointing, right? It means he appointed two great choirs here. And what's really interesting about this word choir, it's actually very interesting. The word choir, certainly from our perspective, is a group of people who sing, right? And, you know, you have choir at church, and obviously we sing about the Lord. And then you have, you know, like school choirs or whatever, secular choirs that sing. Well, they're not really choirs, by the way. They call themselves choirs. That comes from a Christian background. The reality is this word choir literally means hymns of thanksgiving to God or thanksgiving to God. It speaks of those singing thanksgiving. It's really what is the root of the word choir, translated choir here, actually speaks of thanksgiving. Uh, We see that here. We see uh, this uh, Hebrew word translated choir, todah, at its core means thanksgiving or praise. Thanksgiving or praise. And even the New King James, they translate it this way, two large Thanksgiving choirs. Now, that's not for November 25th. You know, this is two large choirs or groups of people that are singing thanksgivings to God. They're singing praises to God. That's what a choir does. A choir is about thanking and praising God in worship through song. Okay? That's what it is. That's what a real choir is. That's what a real choir, and that's required to do that, right? Okay. Well, this is what we see here. So he appoints two great choirs. And the first one, he says here, proceeding to the right on top of the wall towards the refuse gate. Now, I'm going to try to do this backwards so you can see this, but let's say you have the walls of Jerusalem like this, right? And on the bottom over on this side, you have the refuse gate. On the top, you have the gates going into where the temple is, Okay. Now, they're going to proceed to the right. Uh, well, I'll, I'll try to figure this out here. <laughs> the first, so think of someone at 7 o'clock, right? 7 o'clock and then going through 6 to, 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 to the refuse gate around 5 o'clock, okay? Coming around, okay? Going to, the, going to the right, okay? Coming up around this way, okay? That's the first group. Now, the other group is going to come around this way, okay? That's, uh, so you can figure it out. Uh, So here, we have the first one going uh, towards, on the wall, towards the refuse gate. Now, that's the at the bottom. That's the farthest away from the temple. It's kind of interesting, the design of the city and the walls. You've got this refuse gate, and then out you have Gehenna right outside that. Then you go up around the top, and you have the gates, the sheep gate, and the the other gate to where the temple is, right? You have the temple and the worship of God on one side. and the other side, you have all the refuge, and you have it going out that way. Kind of interesting, okay? So... We have this, so Nehemiah, then he names the leaders, thirty two. Uh so they're 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 basically going up first of all, appointed two great choirs, and uh they are uh uh the first proceeding to the right, this is the middle of verse thirty one, on the top of the wall towards the refuse gate. And then we have verse thirty two Hosh Hosh and half of the leaders of Judah followed them. That's the first choir got half the leaders and Hoshahiah following them with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemiah, Jeremiah, and some of the sons of the priests with, what do you got there? Trumpets. You got trumpets, musical instruments. Now, that's awesome. And then, and Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemiah, uh, the son of Mataniah, the son of uh, Micaiah, the son of Zachor, the son of Asaph, and his kinsman Shemiah, Azarel, Maliah, Maliah, Giliah, uh, Gilai, Maal, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hananiah, with musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. So we got this first great choir going around towards the refuse gate, going to go up around this way, and we have all these leaders. We got trumpets. We got uh, we got uh, these uh, these ones with musical instruments, right? And he says here, musical instruments of David, the man of God. And then we have Ezra the scribe going before them. Interesting. So Ezra, don't forget him. He was a priest and a scribe. We see that back in chapter eight, verse two. But here he is simply spoken of as Ezra the scribe, Ezra the scribe, and that's important, I believe. And who is Ezra? We've seen him before. As I mentioned, he's not only a priest, but he's also a scribe. Um, A scribe in general was a uh, distinguished professional who would perform duties. We might associate with lawyers, journalists, government officials, document copyists. Okay, But here specifically, when it came to those who are following the Lord, a scribe was an expert in the law of God. And... He was an expert in the in the law of God. And so here we see that Ezra was uh, leading them, right? Ezra, Ezra was learned in the word of God. He was learned in the word of God. Uh, indeed, turn to Ezra chapter 7 just before us. Or to Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Turn to Ezra chapter 7. Now, in chapter 7, some 14 years earlier than this, Ezra the scribe and the priest had been granted permission to leave Babylon by King Artaxerxes, and he brought 2,000 men and their families to Jerusalem along with the treasures for the temple that King Artaxerxes also had allowed him and given him authority to establish the law. So Ezra came. And in regards to that, look at Ezra 7, uh, verse 6. Then Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he had requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And some of the sons of Israel, some of the, some, and some of the sons of Israel, and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants went to go up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, and he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. I'm going to move this back. i got a glare from my light here. There we go. That's uh, easier to read here. And so he came to Jerusalem. And then look at verse uh, 9. For on the first of the month he began to go from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. Isn't that great? And why was the good hand upon Ezra? Why was God's good hand upon him? Look at this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. That means to do it. He didn't just set it, hey, I'm going to be a preacher. He set his heart to study it and to do it. And then he says here, he says here, uh, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra's a good guy. And you might remember at the beginning of the spiritual walls being rebuilt in chapter 8, the people called for Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord God had given them. And Ezra did so, and he read from it, and the people were taught, and their hearts were changed. Ezra's a man of the word. Now, the man of the word here is being appointed to lead this group to walk in front of them. That's important, I think, because all of our worship comes out of what god has revealed in his truth about himself and we worship him based on what has been revealed about god and we see that so ezra is leading this ezra the scribe ezra the scribe important principle for us and then notice there's a second phrase second uh, second to the last phrase of 36 go back to nehemiah it says with the musical instruments of david the man of god very interesting They've got the musical instruments. They've got a specific instruments that David had obviously uh, said they should use. They're on the wall, and they've got these specific instruments. And Nehemiah is making it clear. They've got these instruments. David, the man of God. Now, David is mentioned six times in chapter 12. Four of those times are in direct reference to and regarding worship. Two of those times, in, in one in our verse, he's called the man of God. The man of God. Isn't that great? David is a man of God. And we see that Acts chapter 13 we have this statement uh, where the Lord, after having removed Paul or Saul, excuse me, uh, removed Saul, it says He raised up David to be their king. Acts 13:22, concerning whom He also testified and said, God testified and said. By the way, He says here, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after My heart, who will do all My will. David's a man of God. Yes, he blew it. He messed up, but when he got uh, when he was convicted by Nathan and the word coming from Nathan, he repented. He suffered consequences. But David was a man of God. David was a man of God. And so here this godly man evidently had prescribed things. Back in verse 24, we see that David, the man of God, prescribed division by division those who were to praise and give thanks. He gave some order to Israel's worship. He had prescriptions. There should be this group this way. Doing it this way. division And here we see that he had prescribed certain instruments. This is very interesting. The instruments of David. The musical instruments of David. And look down at verse 45. Verse 45. For they performed the worship of their God and the service of purification together with singers singers and the gatekeepers, in accordance with the command of David, the command of David and of his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. There was order, there was leaders, there were organization. And we have here this statement about the musical instruments of of David, And when I thought about this, I thought, wow, this is quite interesting because what it implies is that David chose certain instruments and certain instruments were left out. The musical instruments of David, David chose that, I believe, inspired by the spirit, which were glorifying to God. There's a principle here. The instruments of David, certain ones were the ones that went. That implies there were other instruments at that time, culturally speaking, that didn't go, that didn't go, that were not part of worship. And that's an important principle for us to think of. That's an important principle. The reality is, uh, could it be that not all instruments are appropriate for the worship of God? Possible. Certainly is. This, this principle is certainly here. You know, let me share another worship application. You know, it wasn't the congregation which chose the instruments which were used in worship. It was those leading. It was David, one in charge. They chose the instruments which were that which should be used in the worship of God. And if you are a leader in the body of Christ and you have a conviction of what musical instruments glorify God and what don't, stick to that truth graciously. Do not allow the congregation to dictate to you what instruments should be used. If you have a conviction about what is glorifying to God and what is not. There were specific instruments. The instruments here, now he doesn't name them. Well, we actually does name them. We see it a little earlier there. But... uh we see that, um, and so we need to be careful. We need to be recognized that not everything that is musical glorifies God. Not everything, okay? It's important to know. So then we have this great choir going in one direction with the musical instruments of David, Ezra leading. As they walk on the wall, they're coming counterclockwise up through past the refuse gate, coming counterclockwise up that way. And notice, uh, he continues here, verse 37. And at the fountain gate, they went directly up the steps of the city of of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. They're heading around, as I mentioned, counterclockwise, and we'll see they're going to come to the house of God. temple. It's organized, this great choir, instruments, Leaders, uh, the word of God represented with Ezra going in front of them, right? And then we continue to see the organization. Notice here uh, in verse 38, the second choir proceeded to the left. That's coming around now this way around, okay? On the other side, coming to the left, coming up clockwise, all right? Around and on the walls. While I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim by the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel and the tower of a hundred as far as the sheep gate. The sheep gate, that's where they would bring in the sacrifices, by the way, for the temple. And they stopped at the gate of the guard. So we have this second choir organized coming around. He's appointed those. What do choirs do? They sing, right? What do instruments do? They play, right? And they're coming around, and we have the leaders of that. And so we have this great worship procession on top of the wall with Nehemiah and Ezra. And we have this instruments and singers, and they arrive, uh, I believe, gloriously at the temple. They arrive gloriously at the temple here. And so we have a great principle for our worship Uh, In churches, the worship service is to be organized and it is to be led. It's not a free for all of whatever you want to do. Indeed, if you look at the Apostle Paul and his addressing Corinth's messed up worship in chapters 12 through 14, the very last thing he says in his exhortation, the very last thing he sums it up, he says in verse 40, First uh, Corinthians 14, but let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner, the very last thing, okay? And we see that here. Now, there's no room for our worship to be unorganized. There's no room for it to be just shot off the hip. There's no room for that. But we need to guard ourselves because with organization comes a trust in that organization, comes a trust in systems or ways that things are done. We need be careful that it doesn't become rote, Remember, uh, we are those who, it is apart from abiding in Christ, we can do nothing. We are not to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. We're to remember that we can only please God by faith. So although we have organization, that organization is committed to him, and we are abiding in him as we do those things. So it doesn't become some rote ritual. Like you see, maybe some churches started out well, but a few generations later, it's just a rote ritual. You know what I'm saying? From people that don't even know the Lord. You know, so let it not be us, let us learn. So we organize prayerfully and in dependence, not independence, but in dependence (coughs) of the living God. And we trust him to work through us as he executes worship of him through his people, brings it forth. So then the worship of the living God is to be done properly in an orderly manner. Okay, and that's good instruction for us. And then notice another principle we see here. The worship service is to be immersed in glorifying music and singing. Glorifying music and singing. <coughs> notice what happens when they come all the way around to the top, both sides, to the house of God. Verse 40, then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. That's, I don't need to explain that. That's pretty straightforward, right? It means they took their stand inside the temple. Uh, Nehemiah says uh, they, th- that uh, he did so, and half the officials, and, and notice what he says here, middle of four, so I did, and half the officials with me, and the priests, Elikiam, and uh, Messiah and Miniamin, and Micaiah, and Elionani, and Zachariah and Hananiah, with the trumpets, and Messiah, Mas- 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 Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, and Jehanan, Malchiah, Elam, and Izar. Here we go. We have the leaders of worship. They're taking their stand also. The choirs have taken their stand. And notice what it says here, end of verse 42. And the singers sang. That's glorious. The singers sang. Specific people dedicated to sing, obviously talented, given those abilities by God, those natural talents. And the singers sang. Remember those are the guys that hung out? They had their houses nearby, Jerusalem, ready to go. They were called, hey, time to go. They came. They did it, right? And the singers sang uh, with Jezriah, their leader. So, again, organization. We have a leader, and we have the singers singing And so this is worship of the living God. It must be immersed in song. It must be immersed in song. Remember what we saw back in chapter 12, verse 8. This is from the first generation that came. And the Levites uh, were Joshua, Benui, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, the choir songs, right, the songs of thanksgiving. And then we saw the Levites, chapter 12, verse 24 uh, were to praise and give thanks as prescribed by David, the man of God. We saw in the middle of 27, it was so that they might uh, celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs of accompaniment, with of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Hymns of thanksgiving. We saw 24 to be praised, to the giving of thanks. We just saw, and don't forget, the two great choirs. There's singing. There is singing involved. And brothers and sisters, our music should be that which causes us to give thanks to God. To give thanks to God. You know, I can listen to Christian music which may cause me to give thanks, it may not. It's something that I enjoy maybe or whatever it might be, certain styles, whatever it might be. Some of that is not appropriate for the worship service. This is not being uh, hypocritical. The reality is we do things for ourselves and God gives us all things richly to enjoy that are not bad things, right? But there should be those things in our worship service that are sung that give God the glory and cause us to give him thanks. To give him thanks. Our music should do so. Now, uh, within this, uh, we see all throughout the examples in the Psalms. I'm going to read some of them. There are so many. There are so many examples of singing to the Lord, singing unto the Lord. Let's take a look at a couple. We'll start in Psalm 7. We're just going to start rolling through some of these, all right? There's so many Old Testament examples. And this should help us in our choice of music. It should help us in how we sing unto the Lord as a body, as the assembled church to glorify the Lord. Again, we can enjoy music about God and whatever it might be and about what he's done for us and stuff, but some of those things, we just like the kind of music style or whatever it might be. You know, This needs to be that which glorifies God and causes the giving of thanks inherently to be involved in the music. Look at what we see here, Psalm 7, 17. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to thy name of the Lord most high. There you go. That's self-explanatory. How about Psalm 9, verse 1? For the choir director, we read this earlier, didn't we? For, on Muth Lavin, a Psalm of David, this choir director. This is for the choir director. He should be singing this. This should be one of the songs that we have on Sunday, he's saying. Or it was Saturday at that point, I think, but it's New Testament Sunday, right? First day of the week. Okay, it says here, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all thy wonders. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. This is what the song should be like in our praise and time together, right? This is what this should be like. How about Psalm 13, verse 6? I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully to me with me. Psalm 18:49. Therefore, I will give thanks to thee among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to thy name. Sing praises to thy name. Psalm 24, verse 13: be, be thou exalted, O Lord, in thy strength. We will sing praise. We will sing. Uh, we will sing and praise thy power. You're a powerful, awesome, wonderful God. We praise you. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. Right, right. Wonderful things. Uh, Psalm um, 27, verse 6. And now my head will be lifted above my enemies around me, and I will offer to his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Our singing needs to not be about how I feel about God. We're almost singing praises to ourselves. So nothing wrong with kind of hearing a song that says how great God is and how you feel. It. That's fine. When we come together, we are to praise him. It is not about how we feel about God. It is about who he is and what he has done and our praise To him it is becoming. Uh, Psalm 30, verse 4: Sing praises to the Lord, sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Remember, Thanksgiving is threaded throughout this. When you think of choir, think of Thanksgiving involved in the songs. Think of that. Think of that. Psalm 33, verse 1: Shout for joy in the Lord, all you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, that's an instrument. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings, that's an instrument. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. That should be the attitude behind all of our music. This is Music Ministry 101, right? This is what is at the core of how we should bring forth the music in our worship together. Psalm 47, verse 6, sing praises to him, sing praises to to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm, the skillful psalm. Psalm 57, verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake my glory, awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to me among the nations. For thy loving kindness is great to the heavens and thy truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God, and let thy glory be above the earth. Hey, we sang that earlier, didn't we? Exactly. That's the type of song we should be singing as we're exalting the Lord God, right? And praising him and thanking him. Psalm 59, verse 17, O my strength, I will sing praise to thee, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. Psalm 66, verse 1, For the choir director, a song, a psalm. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are thy works. Because of thy greatness, of thy power, thine enemies will give feigned obedience to thee. All the earth will worship thee and will sing praise to thee. They will sing praise to thy name, Selah. Psalm 68, 32, sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praises to the Lord. Selah. I'm only at Psalms, Psalm 70 right now. Psalm 71. I will praise thee with the harp. Psalm 70, verse t- 1, verse 22. Let me read this again. I will also praise thee with the harp. Even thy truth, O my God, to thee I will sing praises with the lyre. O thou Holy one of Israel, my lips will shot for joy when I sing praises to thee and my soul which thou hast redeemed. I could keep going up to the end of the Psalms. There are so many Psalms about singing praise and thanks to the Lord. Our worship needs to be immersed in this, immersed in this. That's the type of music we need to choose. That's why we sing the songs we sing. That's why we don't sing the majority of the modern praise songs, because they're basically repetitious, uh, rote songs. Uh, They're songs that are all about how we feel about God rather than about who he is and what he has done for us in the context of giving thanks and praise, right? That's why it's different, okay? Now, not only should we be singing and praising the Lord together, but we should be doing that on our own. We should be in our hearts Be singing and making melody to the Lord. I read this earlier. Uh, Turn to to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. If we are being spirit-led, the spirit of God is controlling us. He uses the illustration of wine. You get drunk with wine, guess what's controlling you? Wine is. It's controlling you. It's controlling your actions, right? Don't let that happen, but let the spirit of God control you. That's what he's saying. And this is what's going to happen as the spirit of God controls you. Ephesians 5.17. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to fill you. Allow him to control you. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Right? Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Or you could say it to this way, to God, the Father. You could say it that way. So then, that should be in our hearts, and it should be coming out of our lips. If you don't sing on Sunday, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I used to see, and I I'd try not to look at it. I'd be up, there and I'd see, I was looking, I see people not singing. Like, oh Lord, help me not to make judgments, but something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. You know, if you are self-conscious about your voice, that's a problem. That's self-focus. Right? Get over it, confess it, and sing to the Lord. All right. Now, you don't want to be singing in such a way it distracts people, but sing to the Lord. Right? Sing to the Lord. But if you're not singing, something is wrong. Either there is sin in your life or you don't know the God that you should be singing thankfully to. So examine yourselves in that. Our worship is to be filled with thanksgiving and praise and must be, that must be a tremendously huge part of our worship. Okay? These are great principles for us for corporate worship. Okay, and lastly for today, and we'll have two principles after this next time, but lastly for today, we're going to see that the worship service must be focused on Christ and his sacrifice. Christ and his sacrifice. And that's going to bring great, great joy. Sorry. Great, great joy. Take a look at verse 43. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices. This is Nehemiah 12. And rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. I mentioned this earlier, but we're going to see this on that day. We're going to see it in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day. So on that day, they offered sacrifices. On that day, the word of God was preached during that time. It gives us more principles, right? So right here, we see they offered sacrifices. Folks, there's so much to be praising God for, for what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. And here we see uh, that they are offering sacrifices. Those sacrifices would look forward to the Lamb of God. It would take away the sins of the world. We see that. We see that. The reality is the Lord God is gracious, and he brings about these uh, this joy in the context of thinking about the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, you see, because these sacrifices, they didn't uh, do anything. They were symbolic. They were foreshadowing what God would do. We see, as you're turning to um, <coughs> Hebrews 10, in Psalm 51, in Psalm 51, basically, in Psalm 51, David would say, hey, if you wanted sacrifices, I would give those. If you wanted thank you. If you wanted sacrifices, I'd give them. That's not what you want. You want a contrite spirit. You want a heart that's right. You want a heart that's right. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we see that these sacrifices never accomplished anything. They were symbolic. They pointed to something. They pointed to something. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to go back to verse 1. For the law, since it's only a shadow of good things to come, there you go, there you go. Only a shadow of good things come, and not the very form of things. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have. They, otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having been once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. Year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bull of goats to take away sins. Therefore, when He, is speaking of Jesus, when He took on human flesh, this is a conversation between God the Father and God the Son, quite amazing. When He, therefore, um, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. That's God taking on human flesh. And in who, who whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is the Lord Jesus, behold, I have come in the role of the book. It is, the, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first, that's the shadow. To establish the second, that's the reality in Christ, by the way, by this will, that's Jesus coming and dying for our sins, taking on human flesh, dying for our sins, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, once for all. They all pointed to Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament, true believers had an understanding of that. The false people didn't. They did it in a ritual manner. David knew sacrifice and offering. That's not what you desire. You desire the heart, the right heart. God would say in Deuteronomy, circumcise your heart. Get your heart right. Get your heart right. And all these would point to the one the Old Testament pointed to, which is Jesus Christ. And so our worship should be centered around the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And focused on that. If that's not happening, forget the music. Forget everything. It should be centered. Because notice what brings the great joy. It's the sacrifice. It's it's recognizing that there needed to be a death for the forgiveness of sins. And that comes through Jesus Christ. They offered sacrifices. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. Because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced. Uh, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar. We should be so thankful and so glad for what Jesus Christ did for us, for his once-for-all sacrifice. If that is not part of our worship, our worship is worthless. It's worthless. We need to uh, raise up and the worth and value of what Christ has done in our hearts and minds and certainly together. Our worship needs to be filled with joyous praise and thanksgiving for what Jesus has done. And God will give you that joy. When sin's not there, you think about Jesus, he's going to give you joy. You think about what he's done for you, he's going to give you joy. And that's what our worship should be. This can only happen when we're thinking about focusing on Jesus Christ, fixing our eyes on him. Well, we're out of time. Uh, so But next time, we're going to see that it didn't end here. There was also offerings. And there was the convicting word of God preached by Ezra. We're going to see that. And that really closes out the book apart from then a section on sin that came back up and had to be dealt with. And Nehemiah dealt with it. So we come to the kind of the, 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 the closing sections of this book. So how are we to worship? How are we to worship? We've seen our last two times uh, that we must have leadership in worship and skilled servants uh, the, plan- the service must be planned and it must be pure. Uh, we've seen today it must be organized and in order. There's leaders, there's direction, uh, and it must be immersed in glorifying music with singing and thanksfulness. And it must be focused on Jesus Christ and his once-for-all sacrifice that brings joy for us for what he's done. So then may we learn from this and may we apply these principles uh, in total dependence Uh, to the Lord as we function as a body, as the church here in this this time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. Father, thank you for the forgiveness of sins in your son, Jesus. Thank you that we have had our sins forgiven. We praise you. You are a great God. You are an awesome God. You're a wonderful God. And Lord, help us to see our worship time rightly. Help us to Uh, Be organized, planned, and pure, Lord God. Help us to be those who are thankful and praising you for what you've done in song with instruments, Lord, and then focusing on your son, Jesus. Help us to be that, an example of, of true, genuine worship that people who see would, would, would be, would uh, turn and give you glory, Lord God, that we would rejoice for the joy that you have given us because of your son, Jesus. So we thank you and praise you for uh, your son. And it is in his name we pray. All right, John, could we sing?